Today on the Ticker Tapes, we hear from BHF Professor Mark Carney, who's working to better understand diabetes and the connection between diabetes and heart failure. From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Christy Norris. On the Ticker Tapes, we hear from people researching or living with heart and circulatory conditions. On this episode, Mark Carney, BHF Professor of Diabetes and Cardiovascular Research at the University of Leeds, shares his personal connection to heart disease, the discoveries he's made in his research, and his future hopes for people living with diabetes and heart failure. Even though there's been massive and exciting improvements in treatment, patients with diabetes and heart failure still have a life expectancy similar to someone who has some of the worst cancers. So it's still really, really important. The answer as to why is something we're trying to examine. Well, thanks, Mark, uh, for joining us today. Really chuffed to have you on Ticker Tapes. Thank you. If you could start by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do, that would be great. Yeah, I'm, I'm Mark Carney. I'm a cardiologist. So I'm a doctor who looks after patients with heart disease. And, and my main area of expertise in terms of looking after patients is patients who've got weakened hearts, so heart failure, which is a really tough disease to have. So I look, look after lots of patients with that. But at the same time, I'm very interested in understanding why patients with heart failure you know, suffer these symptoms, why their, their life expectancy is reduced. And in particular, I'm interested in the, 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 the effect that diabetes has on patients with heart failure. So I spend a lot of my time doing research into the, the, the causes of heart failure linked to diabetes and um, thinking about new ways of treating patients. So I'm, I'm really a, a, what you would describe as a clinical academic. So I'm a sort of a, a, a doctor who does research at the same time. Great, thank you. And for those who might not be familiar, can you explain what heart failure is? So heart failure is really common. So probably in, in the in the UK at the moment, there are a million people who suffer from heart failure. You've probably got a, a one in five chance of getting heart failure as you get older. Basically, but what it is, it's that, that, that the main pumping chamber of the heart, called the left ventricle, doesn't pump enough blood out to, to supply the, the body. And, and the main feature of heart failure initially is, is breathlessness. So patients with heart failure, you know, they find that they can't do their activities of daily living. And as heart failure gets worse, which it often does, it progresses. And by progression, I mean, the symptoms deteriorate and patients get fluid uh, in their ankles and on the lungs. And yeah, so it's, it, it impacts on exercise tolerance. So patients with heart failure, this weakened heart, can't walk as far, they can't do their activities of daily living. And sadly, it really does impact on life expectancy as well. So if someone has heart failure over the next 10 years, depending on if they have comorbidities, which we can talk about as well, you can expect to lose more than three years of life uh, mm. expectancy. So it's really is a, it's an important disease, common. Mm. And, and who does it affect? It affects lots of different people. So a heart, it's, it's funny because the heart is often the end of lots of different diseases. So someone with high blood pressure, over time, it can damage the heart or someone who has a heart attack. So it can very suddenly affect the heart. Nowadays, as, as patients are, are, are getting older or people are living longer, valvular heart disease is getting more common. So lots of different things can actually impact on the left ventricle. So when, when I say impact on the left ventricle, I mean damage the pumping chamber of the heart. Hmm. And, and even re more recently, COVID-19 has been shown to cause uh, damage to the heart. So it really is an important uh, problem. 
Yes, and we'll, we'll come to that um, further on in our in our talk. And you mentioned um, your work also delves into diabetes. For those that, again, might not be too familiar, can you explain the types of diabetes? Yeah, so there's two types, broadly speaking, type 1 and type 2. So I'll, I'll talk about two, the, the, the second one first. So type 2 diabetes is the commonest, and it accounts for 90% of, of all cases of diabetes. And to put in perspective how important this is, probably about 400 million people across the world suffer from type 2 diabetes. And type 2 diabetes is where insulin, which is the substance that lowers the glucose in the blood, so it it lowers your sugar levels. Type 2 diabetes is when the body is resistant to insulin. This leads to lots of problems with the heart and the blood vessels. Type 1 diabetes is where there's not enough insulin produced, so the body doesn't produce enough insulin to lower blood glucose. So type 1 and type 2 diabetes both lead to increased sugar in the blood, but there are different causes and, and different ways of becoming evident in people, in patients. Mm. And how prevalent is type 2 diabetes today? Oh, I mean, this is a, it's a major, major problem. 400 million people in the world, but probably by the end of this decade, that'll have gone to 600 million. And one of the major causes of diabetes, type 2 diabetes, mm. is, is obesity. And across the world, there are probably over a billion people with obesity. Uh, and that drives the development of diabetes. And and it's difficult because the, the world has changed. The way the world we live in has changed a lot. So, you know, for instance, when I was young, I would walk 3.2 miles per day, a mile and a half to school and a mile and a half back. If you look even further back in, in, in human history, our ancestors would walk 10 miles a day. Mm. But we, we did some work looking at uh, how, how often children, how have our children walk, and children now walk half a mile a day. So we're eating more and we're not exercising as much. And this is leading to a a, a massive increase in obesity and type 2 diabetes. Mm, And I suppose the pandemic will have also had a significant effect on people's daily step count, not going to the workplace, not going to the office. That's a super point, Christy, because there is this thing as the the COVID weight gain and, and lots of people have put weight on over COVID or during the pandemic. Some people haven't, they've exercised more, but I think it has led to an increase in weight and, and less exercise, you know, gen- generally speaking. Mm. And you mentioned that your field of research crosses both heart failure and diabetes. And we know at the BHF that there is a connection between a number of different cardiovascular conditions. Can you explain the connection between diabetes and, and heart disease? I, I will, but what I'll, I'll do first is I'll, I'll maybe illustrate the effect of diabetes on heart disease mm. per se. So, so heart disease really, if you think about it, 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 it starts with sort of narrowing of the blood vessels often or high blood pressure, but narrowing of the blood vessels and diabetes increases the risk of the narrowing of the blood vessels between two and three times in, in, a, in a person. It, it then increases the risk of a heart attack two or three times. If you have your heart attack, it increases risk of death two or three times. And then if you survive the heart attack and you get heart failure, which I'm interested in, diabetes increases the risk of death by two or three times. But it also, it's not just the impact on life expectancy. It makes symptoms worse. So diabetes makes uh, the heart failure syndrome, and by syndrome, I mean this collection of symptoms and signs. It makes it a lot worse. So patients with diabetes and heart failure much more likely to be admitted to hospital, which is a terrible thing for patients and their families. Mm. So if a patient comes into hospital with diabetes and heart failure, they'll stay for a week. And that's really terrible for patients. So all along the, the, the progression of heart disease, diabetes makes things worse. Mm-hmm. Now, 
The reasons for that, are, are there's lots of different reasons and lots of things we don't understand, which is what our, our research in Leeds is trying to examine, is why patients with diabetes develop heart disease more quickly. And then once they have heart failure, which is another, which is the end of the, of, of the pro process, why diabetes makes this worse? Because even though there's been massive and exciting improvements in treatment, patients with diabetes and heart failure still have a life expectancy similar to someone who has some of the worst cancers. So it's still really, really important. The answer as to why is something we're trying to examine. Mm. And do you, you know, having worked with patients um, who have diabetes or who have heart failure, do you think there's a gap in public knowledge around these conditions and around the connection between some conditions such as diabetes and heart failure? I think this is a really important point. I think that historically, diabetes has been thought of as something that's quite trivial and it's been like you know, sugar and people don't understand how important it is and how it can have a devastating effect on people's lives. So I think that's important. I also think that heart failure is so common, and this is not a competition between diseases because you know we, we want to, to help uh, people's health, improve people's health, whatever they've got, but the new cases of heart failure every year outnumber new cases of the com three commonest cancers. So we are dealing with in heart failure and diabetes, something that's really, really common and, and it has a terrible effect on people's lives and their families. Mm, and I, I'm sure you have met many people whose stories have really stuck with you. Yeah, lots of people. I mean, what we used to see and work that um, has been done funded by the British Heart Foundation is, is often we'd see, I would see patients, uh, have, I'd have my list, my clinic list. So I, I, I have about you know 20 patients coming to clinic and a patient wouldn't arrive at hospital. And you think, why is that? And sadly, they died suddenly at, at home. And diabetes increases the risk of sudden death in patients with heart failure by about three times, and it's still a problem. Things are improving, treatments that uh, that we can target at patients' health and devices that, that the British Heart Foundation has um, helped develop. So pacemakers and defibrillators have improved people's lives. But So that, that used to be a big problem where patients didn't come to clinic because they died, which is really devastating. But more often now, I see a lot of patients who have this gradual decline in symptoms. They can't walk as far. They sort of uh, become more depressed and and 40 percent of our patients with heart failure will have you know depression mm. um and it becomes you know, a progressive horrible disease so lots of my patients you see this gradual decline in symptoms which isn't very nice i think that's a really interesting point about um coming into contact with patients who have really serious conditions and, and as a result of course naturally will have mental health issues or may have depression or anxiety and um, what would be your advice for those individuals I think the first thing is to think about it and don't just put things down to low mood or you know not being strong enough. I think that's really important is that we recognise that chronic disease such as heart failure is not nice it's, and it impacts on families and patients' mood. And, and, and I think if you think about an admission to hospital, for instance, you know, the patient comes in for seven days or more, their family have got to visit the hospital during COVID. They actually couldn't visit the patients in hospital. So these are all horrible things. And I think we've got to recognise that the natural response to this is, is unhappiness and mental health issues. And I think once we surface it, then we can address it. So I think recognise that it is a problem and then, then talk to people about it. I mean, in treatment of heart failure, we have across the country brilliant sort of heart failure nurse teams and they're brilliant. So talk to your heart failure nurse talk to your GP and, and ultimately when you come to see me in hospital, talk to me as well. 
Absolutely. And would you say they're the, the key uh, recommendations for, you know, what support is out there for people who are experiencing these conditions? Would you say it is about speaking to their clinicians, to their nurses? I think that the, the first part of call is, is the heart failure nurses. And I was at the very beginning of, uh, the, of the development or introduction of specialist heart failure nurses. And it was it was really pioneered by the British Heart Foundation. So talk to those the nurses who are absolutely brilliant and, and, and they've got so many qualities in terms of knowledge, empathy, and passion to help patients. So that's the first part of call. But there's other ways of addressing sort of mental health problems is talk to your GP. And if you're seeing a consultant like me, always talk about it and don't be frightened to raise these issues. Mm, And you mentioned about family members. Of course, it's not just the patients who are going through this trauma or this experience. Families are along for the journey. What would you recommend for loved ones who have questions and queries about their family member? I think there's a number of different people to speak to. Obviously, there's support through the the BHF family, but then there's the heart failure nurses. Patient support groups are really important. And and in Leeds, we have patient support groups as well. I think this is is common across the country. So there are a number of different places to go. And I think it's really helpful to talk to people who have actually lived that experience. So living with a patient with heart failure and sort of understanding the problems that they have. I think it's it's a really important thing. And one of the things about heart failure, I've learned this through COVID is, is that COVID shrunk our lives, hasn't it? It's made, made our lives smaller. But before COVID, a patient with heart failure's life was, I, I've realised it was smaller. They can't walk as far, they can't get out. So I think it's really important to understand how, how, how challenging this disorder can be. Mm, absolutely. And just turning our attention to, to your scientific career and, and your support from the BHF, can you tell us how you became a cardiovascular scientist? What drove you to make that decision in, in moving into a career in science? So it's a long journey, Christy. <laughs> it's a funny one, actually, because you, you suddenly realise that you're getting older. When it, it suddenly happens to you. It'll happen to you eventually. I now feel like I'm an, an old hand in research, but it, it was 20 odd years ago that I developed an interest in cardiology. I really liked cardiology. I liked that you could do things to patients quickly and make them better. And I was really interested in the science behind heart disease. So at that point in in my career, to get a job in cardiology as a junior doctor, you need to do research. So I did research really to help me develop my career. And I went to Nottingham and I worked in the Department of Physiology there. And what I found was the, the, the research process of having an idea or a question, designing experiments to answer that question, then publishing the work that would ultimately, you know, it help improve knowledge of patients or, or human disease, and then actually ultimately helping to develop treatments. I thought was brilliant, and it, and it really sort of uh, inspired me. So I, I moved around. I, I left Nottingham, came back to Leeds for a while, and went to London. And it was working in, in another BHF professor's department, Ajay Shah, the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine in, at King's College Hospital, where I really, really learnt a lot. And that there was lots of other cardiovascular researchers who, who helped me. So there's Michael Marber, who worked at St. Thomas's, and Ajay Shah, who were really my mentors. I think that's really important. And they inspired me. So at, at that time, I realised that I was interested in heart failure and developed this interest in diabetes and over the sort of 20 years since then I've just developed this interest and worked with different people and I moved to Leeds from King's in 2006 it seems doesn't seem 15 years but it is as a professor and then became BHF professor in 2013 so it's been a it's a long journey but it's been really worthwhile and, and satisfying. 
fantastic and obviously your career is still flourishing we're not at the end yeah. yet but in no, terms no. of <laughs> in terms of the the difference that you feel your research has made so far are there any discoveries um or publications that really stand out to you as as a proud moment for you christy every publication is, is, is proud <laughs> is proud because it, the, 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 the huge amounts of effort but so my research is i can divide it into two bits really the very clinical patient focused research and the discovery science and when i say discovery science it's 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 working out the why about why a patient does this or why something happens to a cell i think some of the work we've done done recently um in patients looking at how you can reprogram a pacemaker to improve how far a patient with heart failure can walk was really satisfying and interlinked with that is the fact that the, the lead person who did that work was a PhD student of mine so and he's now a lecturer in cardiac physiology so he was a cardiac physiologist so he wasn't a medic but his research and his brains developed that so that's a really satisfying piece of work on the other hand more recently we've shown some work that in the discovery science so working out why people get disease we've shown that the cells I'm interested in so that the, the blood vessels aligned by these cells called endothelial cells and the endothelium is like sheets of these cells and then it, it's bigger than a football pitch in a human mm. uh, and i've shown that these cells can communicate with fat cells to help the the body respond to diabetes so and, and that's the real beauty of being a, a a doctor who does research you can do clinical research at the same time as this discovery science mm, best of both worlds yeah yeah and in terms of the questions that you can ask i'm sure there are a thousand different research questions that you can choose to concentrate on or to delve into can you explain your process how do you decide on which research questions to ask in your team i think that's a really good question so there's two ways isn't there there's the opportunistic and i'll tell you about that in a second but then there's the pipeline so so my research started 20 years ago and it's still very much a similar question because you know you can never ever get to the end of the road in understanding human disease because there's always new things so there's that long road of research questions developing from your last piece of work and this is the stuff that i've been talking about in terms of us discovering and the paper just came out last week that the endothelium could communicate with the fat cell and then there's the opportunistic and i'll give you an example of that so a lot of my patients with heart failure don't like the idea of taking beta blockers and work that's been funded by the British Heart Foundation and others has shown that beta blockers improve life expectancy in heart failure. And I, I saw a patient and he, he said, well, you know, how can you convince me to take it? So I, we had a, a, a grant funded by the British Heart Foundation in about 2007 that funded us to follow patients with heart failure up and work out what the mechanisms of death were. And we recruited 2,000 patients to that study. So I went back to that database after the patient had asked me and worked out, is there anything I can convince this patient about beta blockers? So what we did is we worked out that every milligram of beta blockers would improve life expectancy in patients with heart failure by about 3%. But if you were diabetic, if you had diabetes, it was 9%. So it wasn't, it's an association, but it's evidence for the to convince the patient that it's really good to take these drugs. So there's those questions that patients raise, which uh, help me. But then there's also that long-term program of work that we, we, we're doing as, in parallel. And do you inform your patients who you see in clinic about the research that you're doing? And is that how you actively involve them in your questions? So we, we have a patient um, public involvement group. So we talk to patients about clinical studies, see what they think. And, and what we did is, is we, we did a study a few years ago looking at the effects of vitamin D in heart failure, which was promising. And all the patients we recruited to the study 
we kept them involved. We wrote to them and told them about the results. And then when the study finished, we wrote to thank them. Because without patients, there's no clinical research. And what is really humbling is that patients love doing research. They love helping. They love contributing and being part of the team. So, yeah, we, we keep patients involved from the very beginning to the end of the study. Mm, fantastic. And, you know, we all know that um, careers aren't always linear. Um, and I'm sure the same applies to a scientific career. What's been your experience during your career? Have you had any roadblocks? Um, did you need any support at certain points? Can you, can you share that with us? Yeah, I think it's important for all aspiring uh, cardiovascular researchers to, to know that there's always black days and dark days in, in all aspects of life, really. But in, in terms of research, your first grant as a researcher is hard. The second grant's probably even harder. And then keeping it keeping going is hard. But I have had days when I've not got grants and have been awarded and that's been disappointing. And I think most people re- listen to this podcast who are researchers will know the pain of trying to get papers published and how long it takes. But I think that what I've learned is, is if you've got a good team around you and you've got good mentors, then you can be to build the resilience to 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 achieve and i think the the gains or the uh, you know the, the wins outweigh the, the losses big style in terms of how how satisfying it is hmm. and obviously you know we, we've touched on the, the pandemic but you know we were gripped by covid-19 last year and we we still are this year in many ways how did you find the pandemic impacted your team i think every person was different and I was talking to my uh, my team on Zoom and, and the Teams platforms and every single person be- reacted, responded differently. So often I would be on the uh, talking to, a, to one of my team and there'd be two children behind them doing mm. homeschooling. So it, it was that was hard. Some some really just, just they waltzed through really and didn't find it a, a, a difficult, but I think most people did find it difficult. And um uh, this is where really talking to people and supporting people is really, really important. We've got a team in Leeds who have worked with me for a long time and, and we really supported each other. But it, there's no doubt it's it's hit particularly junior and more sort of up-and-coming researchers harder, I think, because they're worried about the future, just like we were talking about grants and things. This has added to their um, sort of stress, I think. And and how did it hit you personally? What was your, your own experience of covid uh, I had COVID, so ah. I, I, yeah, yeah, so I had COVID, COVID nineteen in November last year. So it, I, I remember, and it was God. I tell you, it's interesting having the disease because it, it, I didn't get admitted to hospital, but it was it wasn't nice. So mm. I know that I know that I can encourage my patients to get vaccinated because I know how horrible it is. So I had COVID, so I've got that experience. But it it, it was easier for me, much easier for me, because I'm an ex, ex sort of established sort of um, member of staff. You know, I could go into the remote communications very easily because I know everybody, I know the team, I know I know people across the university. So really, it wasn't too difficult for me. But I think for new people, younger people, I think it was hard. One of the things that we do, we do know is that social isolation increases the risk of cardiovascular disease. And I think that staff were isolated as well. And I think we need to be aware of the, the effects of loneliness and isolation on health as well. Did you find your patients wanted to be in more regular contact with you during the pandemic for support? Uh, yeah, I think so. So we went straight. We went almost completely telephone clinics. We're still doing telephone clinics. But it's interesting because it was a two way thing because I used to ring patients with heart failure and talk to them about you know how they're doing, how far could they walk, have they got swelling of their ankles? Because I've got quite a lot of experience. And you can really tell when a patient's um, not doing well by, just by talking to them. But often, if they were living alone, I'd feel a bit. I'd feel a bit really sorry for them. So I'd be. I'd say, well, rather than give them an appointment, 
you know, for a few months' time. I said, well, I'll give you a ring in a couple of weeks and see how you're doing. So, and patients really responded to that and that they liked that. Other things, patients were very worried about COVID and were emailing me about could I help them get their vaccinations sorted out, asking me about vaccinations. So some people were worried about the vaccination. Mm-hmm. They want to talk to me about that. And I tried to encourage patients to have it. And in some situations, I was encouraging patients, spouses to have the, the vaccination. So it was it, it really took over our lives, didn't it, um, in every aspect. Mm, definitely. And in terms of the connection between the virus and cardiovascular health, we now know with with research that there is indeed a connection between the two. Can you explain that for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, well, so we, we've always known that viruses can, can affect the heart and the, the, one of the causes of heart failure is viral myocarditis. So this is where the virus actually infects the heart muscle and makes it weaker. And that's one aspect. So COVID can cause um, heart damage, muscle damage. And because, you know, it's very aggressive virus, I think it it does cause damage to the heart muscle. But it's interesting because COVID also affects the blood vessel lining that I I was talking about. So it binds the endothelium and can cause damage to to the blood vessel wall. And we also know that it can cause clotting. So inside the arteries and the blood vessels, clots form that can cause um, strokes or this thing called pulmonary embolus. So you get clots on the lungs. So it is really a cardiovascular disease, COVID. Mm, And that's interesting because obviously we were told so often at the beginning that it was purely a disease that impacts the lungs. And obviously that changed over time. And in terms of the positives of COVID, which sounds like an, an odd thing to say, but from a scientific point of view, we now have this bright shine, you know, a bright light has, has shone onto the power of science. Do you think this presents the cardiovascular research community um, with any opportunities today? I think absolutely. I think that um, British science has been the star of the show during COVID. Vaccines, the recovery trial, you know, treatments to work out how you know treatment steroids was were important in treating patients with COVID, and also working out drugs that weren't weren't effective. So the power of British science. Part of that was British Heart Foundation as well, because we had a number, a lot of projects understanding stuff. We just talked about myocarditis. That was really amazing work supported by British Heart Foundation with researchers. But what it did, it showed how good British science is. And it, it's a mm. source of pride for me that we, we really did contribute to the global effort. I think that we need to capitalise on that because I think it, the British science is one of the major assets of Britain, really. But also, I think what it made us do is realise that, you know, working quickly and as a team was important. And so it wasn't about authorship. It wasn't about people getting individual kudos. It was about a common mission. So I think we we now have this way of working together to address a common goal. And remember that whilst COVID is, is, is a major problem, cardiovascular disease is, is still killing tens and tens of thousands of people in the UK every year. So we still have a challenge on our hands. Mm, definitely. And on that, we find that a lot of people who embark on a cardiovascular career have a personal connection to the BHF's cause. Do you have any experience of cardiovascular disease in your family? So my dad, uh, when he was alive, had a pacemaker and uh, he he had a pacemaker put in at a very young age. And it's interesting now because I I did a clinic uh, a few days ago and I, I prescribed, that's what you say for when you get pacemaker put in, I, I, I prescribed or put people on the list for a pacemaker. So I'm seeing patients who, who had pacemakers like my dad every day or every every week. But it was an interesting one because I remember he had it when I was quite young, so I was about 16, 17. And I think at the time I was trying to remember this, whether I had had an offer to get into medical school or I was waiting for my offer for medical school because I was about 17. 
And I got home from uh, being around my friend's house and I got home and an ambulance was just leaving my um, the house. And I went into the house and my, my mum said, oh, you, you know, your dad's just been taken to hospital. So she was getting a lift to go to hospital and he blacked out. So he blacked out completely and um, and he got taken to hospital and had a pacemaker, a temporary pacemaker put in. So it's where you put a wire into the a vein and it goes into the heart just temporarily. Mm. And then it turned out that my dad, was, his heart was stopping for about 30 to 40 seconds and he had a pacemaker put in at the Freeman Hospital in Newcastle. So in those days, pacemaker was quite a big thing. So he was at our local hospital, and then he got transferred to have a pacemaker put in. So, yeah, yeah. So when I went to medical school, uh, I'd had uh, experience of, you know, cardiovascular disease, you know, firsthand or secondhand with my father. Mm, and I'm sure an experience like that really stays with you. Can you remember much about that day, the day that your dad went to hospital? Yeah, it was interesting. So I was thinking about this. So it was about Novemberish. It was dark. I remember I'd been around my friends listening to to the Jam on the on the you know, on the, <laughs> on the, on the uh, for anyone who's uh, old enough to remember them. So I was listening to them on, on a record player. So so yeah, so we listening on an LP. That's old fashioned. And and I got home and I'd walked home because we didn't have a car, so I walked home. And yeah, I just got into the house and it was it was really weird because my mum was like you know ashen and it was like real shock. My dad had had a a blackout. And at that time, I didn't really know what a blackout was. And then, mm. but then, then when he went to hospital, and uh, I went to see him the next day, he was all wired up. It was, uh, it was quite, um, yeah, it was impactful. I think. Mm. And I remember you you mentioning to me a, a detail before that you can even remember the music that was playing that yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was one of the. Um, it was a, a song. I, was, I think it was called "English Rose" by the Jam. But it was. It, 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 whenever I hear that song, I always remember that day. Uh, you know, it's a quite a sort of a, a love song type thing. So it reminds me of, of of that day when my dad had his when he had his blackouts, which is funny actually. How long ago is that? That's nineteen eighty five. So that's fifteen. So thirty six, thirty seven years ago. I still think about it. Yeah. Mm, music has a bit of a way of doing that, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> There's some songs that you can't listen to after a breakup. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So this is the BHF's 60th birthday this year. So it's, it's a great opportunity to speak to researchers like yourselves and reflect on, you know, the last few decades of research. But in terms of your field of science, what are your hopes? What are your dreams for the future of, of your field of research? And I think I talked about earlier, Christy, about how I see the end result. I see patients with damaged hearts. And I'd like to get to the point where we patients aren't getting to the point of getting a damaged heart so that mm. we're preventing preventing heart attacks, preventing heart failure. And if they do, we prevent them developing really significant damage. So that's that's the thing. I think that at the moment, you know, when we get to heart failure, you're sort of you're treating symptoms. But I'd like to get to the point where we're stopping people having heart attacks. Mm, and how do you think we can do that? I know it's a big question, but just in terms of prevention, it could be argued that it's not the the sexiest field because we can't see the diseases yet. We can't feel them yet as individuals. How do you think we can get people to really pay attention and and buy into the idea of prevention? I think that we, we do a, a reasonable job. I think with the British Heart Foundation, so we do lots of public awareness stuff. I think we need to do not, not just the BHF. I think as, as a community, we need to do more and inspire people to change their lives. But I also think that the, some of the re opportunities for research that we've got with genetics, the genetic revolution, something that in the UK that's unique to us, we've got UK Biobank, which was a big collection of patients who, are, sorry, not patients, people who are very well and actually, and they've been followed. So we've got lots of information in that. So there's two ways, isn't there? There's education, 
trying to inspire people to change their lives. And but there's also the research because we live in a in a society now where it's very difficult to to exercise as much as our ancestors. Food is is readily available, so the drivers for cardiovascular disease are not going away. So I think being able to to deal with these issues early, not just through education, but through intervention and research is, is where we can you know, really make an impact. Mm. And in terms of having regular contact with patients and families, I'd imagine a lot of patient stories really stay with you and, and you, you form relationships and connections with these individuals. Are there any patients that have always stuck in your mind? I've got uh, lots of patients. I've got some patients now who, who, I've, who I'm looking after who, who are absolutely incredibly inspiring i've got hundreds of patients like that who just really are brave and just get on with their life so every clinic i do you'll i'll be at talk to a patient who is just you know brilliant and uh i love talking to them it's, it's amazing hmm. thanks mark and just in terms of a message for our listeners what would you like people to take away from our chat today I think I will frame it around the British Heart Foundation, Christy, because they, they've they've supported me for twenty years and as you know, and supported my research. And what they've done is is the British Heart Foundation has contributed so much to reducing the problems of cardiovascular disease in our patients across the world. But actually, you know, the future is looking good because we've got some brilliant, brilliant talent. And when I'm retired in in however many years. I think that would have made even bigger advances. So there's real hope. We've got the challenge because cardiovascular disease is still important. But working together, I think we can make some big differences and, and hope that patients with diabetes, their life expectancy is the same as someone who doesn't have diabetes and heart disease. We've got real goals we can meet, I think. Great. It's an exciting time for science. And it's really exciting. Really, really exciting. Great. Thank you, Mark, so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Christy. Thank you. Diabetes is a condition that causes high levels of a type of sugar called glucose in the blood. This can damage the lining of our blood vessels, increasing our risk of developing a heart or circulatory condition. In the UK, one third of adults with diabetes will die from a heart or circulatory disease. Pioneering research has led to better understanding and treatment of diabetes and heart disease, but there's much left to do. The BHF has committed £27 million for research into diabetes. If you have any questions about your heart or circulatory health, call the BHF Heart Helpline to speak with a nurse between 9 to 5 on Monday to Fridays on 0300 330 3311 or email hearthelpline at bhf.org.uk. You'll also find lots of useful information in the episode notes and on our website bhf.org.uk.